Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, October 19th, 2017 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. General John Kelly today sort of defending the president or at least tearing into those who would politicize his actions and his condolences to Gold Star families. Although Kelly did make a perhaps opaque reference to his boss's treatment of a Gold Star family at the convention. So this whole thing around the Gold Star families, around the uh, father who the Washington Post reported who Trump promised $25,000 to and is just cutting the check since the Washington Post reported that, and to the mother of LaDavid Johnson and the widow of LaDavid Johnson. The whole reason this came up is not anything unusual, although it's, of course, shocking. It's so appalling because it is exactly the usual patterns that Trump exhibits. I mean, his lies are manifold and well-documented, and people who care to know know that they are lies, but it doesn't really get the blood pumping when he continuously says that China is a great currency manipulator. It doesn't matter how many Pinocchios are issued. It doesn't really resonate in the gut when he says that or makes a claim about the carrier plant or talks about all the reforms he thrust upon Lockheed with building certain jets. But when he breaks faith, with Gold Star families, that is an opportunity for all of us to say, what the hell is going on here? And the way he broke faith was just freelancing, saying, I call and console these families and, you know, my predecessors didn't. Where did this fact come from? He later revealed, well, I heard or someone told me that President Obama didn't routinely do this. And then a day later, he injected in the conversation, we'll ask Kelly if President Obama consoled him. And the fact is, this is very much of a piece with the sort of thing he does, a sort of lie that he tells, which is not based on any fact, which is not based on the need to confirm a fact. It's just based on an impression he gets, either heard or misheard, from someone who either has credibility or doesn't. An exact analog to this was during his first press conference where he made reference to having the largest win total, the largest electoral win total of any Republican. And then in real time, when Pete Alexander 
pointed out that this was not the case. He said, well, I was told that or somebody told me that. Not good enough. Of course, when it's electoral win totals, we could say, wow, what's up with this guy? When it happens with Gold Star families, oh, I was told that and it doesn't matter if it was true or that person was true or I misheard it. As long as someone may have said that to me, when it happens with Gold Star families, then it's appalling. I mean, it should be appalling all along, but then it's appalling in a real emotional sense. Another part of what's making this such a story is the way he spoke to LaDavid Johnson's mother. And apparently he said, well, he knew the risks and this did not sit well with the widow, her mother, or a congresswoman who was in the car. Now I have to say, there is a fine way to express this sentiment. Here is President Obama talking about one of the Dallas police officers who was killed in the last year of his presidency. His mother said, He knew the dangers of the job, but he never shied away from his duty. That's a normal thing to say. That's a comforting thing to say. It's calling out someone's bravery. But when you don't put words together well, it does not come off well. He's incautious, he's inexact, and he's insensitive. It was also clear that he didn't know the name LaDavid Johnson. He often doesn't know names, doesn't know proper facts. And because he's only playing to his base, because he's only trying to appeal to some 40% of America, so far, he thinks it doesn't hurt him. So in this case, when he's talking to someone who is not already in the bag, someone maybe who needs something from him, something other than, you know, blaming people for their problems, when he talks to them, his mistakes aren't immediately priced into the calculation. They're not immediately excused. In fact, they're heard. Sometimes his biggest supporters don't hear his myriad mistakes. They gloss over it. Make America Great Again is not actually a cogent slogan. But if you want to read into it, if you're willing to be deceived, it makes sense. If you're the mother or wife or widow of a soldier who lost his life, you say to yourself, wait a minute, what does that mean? Or I don't even think he knows my son or husband's name. There's one other part of this that I've been thinking about. He's a horrible president, probably a horrible person, but it's kind of turning all of us into horrible people. And here's why I say that. I've been following this story. And when the part of it where the Washington Post reporter documented an offer of $25,000 that wasn't actually given until the story came out. My reaction as a good human should have been, oh my God, that is so appalling. And I said that, but there was part of me that said, oh my God, that is so appalling. I'm glad that he's being exposed. All of these things are terrible things. All of these actions are terrible things he's doing on other people. And rather than actually feeling empathy for the victims, most of the time, I'm feeling resentment for the victimizer. I don't think it's the healthiest emotion. I think it's something Trump's doing to me. And I think it's something Trump's doing to America. Anyway, on the show today, a right-wing provocateur provokes often, but not well. But first, a flag guy, but not our normal flag guy. A flag guy from across the sea. The Union Jack is his flag. But oh, the insight that Tim Marshall visits upon us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So if you know me, you know I love flags, and every once in a while we invite Ted Kay on to convene a vexillology corner. Well, now, I don't know if this is an official corner. I don't know if I'm stepping out on Ted, but I have another flag expert. In fact, he's a world affairs expert and a former uh, BBC and Sky News veteran. Tim Marshall is the author previously of Prisoners of Geography and is now out with A Flag Worth Dying For, The Power and Politics of National Symbols. Hello, Tim. How are you? Never better. Thank you. Did you begin thinking of flags in an overseas posting or just growing up in the UK? To be honest with you, I didn't give them that much thought because I, I don't think most of us, unless we're vexillologists, do. They're just there, aren't they? Mm -hmm. You imbibe. You imbibe their meaning without even knowing it. What made me start thinking about this was after Prisoners of Geography, I realized a lot of people were interested in, in identity and, and the growing issue of nationalism what we have everywhere. And there is no better example of encapsulating nationalism and what it means than in the, in, the, in the flag, you know, because all your hopes and dreams, people pour them into it. Yeah. And if people haven't read Prisoners of Geography, it's maps. The subtitle, in fact, is 10 maps that explain everything about the world grandiose ambitions but it, the similarity of the visual marrying to the actual with maps you're trying to literally represent where geographic features exist with flags you're trying to symbolically represent yet you know the the iconography of flags is sometimes taken as fact but it's often much more myth than fact like the danish flag which uh mm. spread through all of scandinavia right is based on a story that probably didn't exist well there was no empirical evidence that god <laughs> threw down this <laughs> staff with a piece of cloth attached to it and it was caught by the king who was having a bit of a hard time at the t during the battle <laughs> but subsequently won it now I, I grant you there's no empirical evidence, but I take you back to your thing about um, myths. You're absolutely right. Most of them are buried in the mists of time, but the myths, they sort of become facts um, in that sort of philosophical perception becomes reality kind of thing. They're just pieces of cloth with paint on them, but they become much more than that, don't they? Mm -hmm. It is real what you feel about them. And so, yeah, the, the actual origins of them are often based on myths, and then the myths become real. I think there are some flags that if they were different, and if you go back in the histories, they, they all had choices. If some flags were different, it's not too crazy to think that history would be different, and not e even in a slight way. I think the Israeli flag, the primacy, and it's the only flag with a Jewish symbol on it, that reinforces what Israel's about. And the South African flag is essentially an exercise in healing. And yes, that was part of uh, what Nelson Mandela and others had to decide. But the fact that you have a flag essentially saying, this is all of us, rather than this is our tribe... Um, has a real impact on history in South African history, Israeli history. You know, you could say the same for sure. Brazil or Lebanon or Canada and so on. 
Sure, Lebanon's a good example because it has many factions. If you put the symbol of one of them on the flag and excluded the others, that's a, a quick route to serious trouble. And the South African one's a good example as well because it incorporated all the different peoples of the Rainbow Nation. And if, if you don't incorporate them or if you use one dominant sig symbol, then it's difficult. And, and a, a good example, actually, is Kenya. It's got a Maasai warrior shield on it. But the Maasai are only something like one or two percent of the population. Right. So it's not a threat to anybody. If you'd have put the, one of the Kikuyu tribes symbols on there as the nation's symbol, you're asking for trouble because the other big minorities will say, hang on a minute, what about us? And so, yeah, it has to be inclusive. Yeah. In Kenya, the joke was America will elect a Luau president before Kenya will. That was uh, Obama's <laughs> father's tribe. Yeah. I, yeah. Let's, so, so let's subvert standard interviewing technique and just go from the specific and then we'll get to the general. Wefalia? The Wefalia or the Wepela, depending on how you pronounce it. Fascinating flag square. Yeah. Looks like a Rubik's cube. And is the Andean, the ancient Andean symbol going back a thousand years. And it was going to fade away. But President Morales of uh, Bolivia is from the indigenous peoples of that part of the world. And he gave it legal parity with the state flag of Bolivia. So in the universities, the schools, government, military, it flies at the same level. And in diplomatic circles, again, these things really matter. You can't have one flag above another flag, because are you saying that's more important if it's a nation state? And this is flying at equal level. And it's catching on now in the Andes. And the Andean people's movement now have something around which to coalesce. Because you know, you this is why the symbols are so important, because they embody hopes and aspirations. And so that the Wipala is actually spreading slowly across the Andes. It is so interesting to me because when I saw it, I said, what is this, some newfangled <laughs> nation state, some Bitcoin-fueled neo-state? But no, it's thousands of years old because it's a square. The flag is a square, which is slightly unusual. And within the square are seven, it's a, a bunch of 49 squares, seven by seven, uh, of different colors. It, it looks a little like um, some sort of pixelation technique, but no, it goes back a thousand years. There is nothing close to it. I mean, it really does look like a Rubik's Cube uh, with even more squares on it. I mean, it really is quite an astonishing thing. And uh, as I said, it goes back a thousand years and it means something to the, to, the, to the people. And there's no rules set down anywhere that a flag has to be rectangular. Um, but, but you're right. It's a pretty rare thing, a square flag. The ISIS flag is square, mm -hmm. the black flag of ISIS, because Muhammad's flag was thought to be black and square. And I think from memory, the Swiss flag is square. Yeah, I think so. It makes the cross stand out. Now onto ISIS, it's black and white, which is rare. In fact, I can only think of the Jolly Roger. You gave the uh, supposed Islamic interpretation, but is that meant or does that have the effect of instilling fear? I think so. Well, no, it, it, yes, in the manner in which it is then used. In and of itself, the ISIS flag isn't Frightening. It's a black flag. On it is written the profession of faith about Muhammad. And then there's the seal of, of Muhammad. But part two, it's written in very raggedy writing, which says to the beholder, let's get back to the sixth and seventh centuries. Let's not bother with all this modern stuff. We want purity. Mm. And then the third bit is then you then fly that flag in all your propaganda when you're committing these 
terrible, terrible crimes that we, we've seen them do, which they then film, which then get shown precisely to instill that fear. So when you put those, all that together, the moment you see that flag, you're supposed to be frightened. And with respect to the Iraqi army, three years ago now in the city of Mosul, about 8,000 ISIS guys came over the horizon with the black flags and 30,000 professional soldiers ran away. They were scared stiff and it took them two and a half years to get back there and retake the city. So the ISIS flag, the Islamic State flag, is in a section of your book called Flags of Fear. And in that mm. section, there's Hezbollah and Fatah and the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade. You notice that these are flags that uh, do, don't rely on plain visual iconography. It's not the rising red sun of Japan or the maple mm. leaf of Canada. It's not one simple thing. There's a gun and a story and a hand and so much going on. Why is that? Because they are conveying... And they're competing with each other, these these groups, for example, um, the Al-Aqsa Brigades uh, and the Qassam Brigades. Al-Aqsa are out of the West Bank, Qassam are out of Gaza. And so they're both outdoing each other. And so on both of those two examples, there are weapons, which is telling would-be supporters, we will achieve our aims through violence. It is also religious because they put on it, for example, the Al-Aqsa compound where, where the great mosque is on the Dome of the Rock, and they say, we will liberate this for you. And one of them, well, the Fatah one, I think, still has the map of the greater territory, which encompasses Gaza, Israel, and the West Bank, but it doesn't have any lines on it to depict right. where one starts and the other finishes, which again is a message to people saying what it what is they want to achieve. Now, Fatah have accepted a two-state solution, but uh, if you were to remove the weapon from the Fatah flag and start drawing lines, which would be difficult to do, you, you, you're giving something away and your more radical elements that might support you now might then switch to someone that doesn't do those things. So these, these symbolic gestures on the flags they're very, very political, and they mean much more to the aficionados or, or to the local people than they do to you know, outsiders looking at them. So there are a couple of uh, there are a couple of places in the news. Uh, these places often have a flag. I want to yeah. go through them. Catalonia has a mm. couple of flags. One was waved by, from what I gather, Wilfred the Hairy. Who, That's right. Yes, who fought alongside Charles the Bald. I, I do wonder if Wilfred would be known as the Harry were it not for the juxtaposition with the Bald. But anyway, what is their, what is their flag? How does it represent the Catalan people? They lost the battle and then came into the fold of Greater Spain centuries ago. One of the battles they lost, it is said, and this is a little bit like the Danbro, the Danish flag, which was hurled down from heaven by God. Again, you know, there were eyewitnesses but there's no footage of it. <laughs> Allegedly, he was mortally wounded, Wilfred the Hairy, and he had his shield, and his arm was picked up, and they dragged his hand across the shield. And it is known as the four fingers of blood. And so the Catalan now has this, this golden shield, and then these four red stripes coming across it, which is Wilfred the Hairy's hand, which is to sort of say, you know, with our blood we will defend uh, Catalonia. And they've had it ever since, and they've been very proud of it. And they were a nation within the state of Spain. Things have got to, uh, a little bit messy at the moment, as you know. If you watch the news, you'll see 
the Catal that Catalan flag that I refer to, but then there's another one. It's the same, but in the left-hand side, there is a, a blue background with a star on it. Right. And if you're flying that, you're not only saying, I am Catalonian, you're saying, I am Catalonian and I want independence. You can fly the Catalonian flag without necessarily wanting independence. And in fact, in the pro-Spain demonstrations amongst Catalans, they will fly the Catalan flag that we've described, plus the Spanish flag to say we're together. But when you see the one with the blue star, that's the ones who want out. A flag worth dying for, the power and politics of national symbols. Tim Marshall was the author and he joined us. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you. You're a podcast listener. I can prove it. Only podcast listeners are hearing this. Okay. Maybe the guy next to you on the subway has his headphones really loud and it's bleeding over. So I'm going to talk to you now. You're standing next to a podcast listener. You wish you weren't listening to his podcast so loudly. Anyway, you or the guy next to you with the loud headphones, you found plenty of shows you love, like The Gist. But what about shows for the kinder, the little people? Hook them young. Keep them in. It's been pretty desolate out there in terms of what shows there are for kids. I mean, there are kids shows, but compared to television, compared to movies, where like a third of movies are aimed at small children, podcasts have been lagging until now. That is why Panoply created Pinna, the entire audio service just for kids. Pinna is a standalone iPhone app. Okay, so it's not like a feed within Panoply. It's its own thing. The kids can play with the app, touch the app, and what it is is hours of audio, original stories, serials, great podcasts, interview shows. They're, one of the great shows is called Molly and the Sugar Monster with a mission in life, eat less sugar. That alone, if you can listen to a show during bath time and get the kids to eat less sugar, it will be worth it. More and more shows are added each week. Panoply is just going nuts out to fill this pinna app with hours and hours of amazing content. And here's the difference from everything else that's out there for kids. It is ad-free, all right? So you don't have to feel a little bit guilty by exposing your kids to ads. There's not the give and take of, well, you'll have to listen to an ad for the kids. It's one thing when you listen to it as an adult and you have the capacity and facilities to filter out the ads and to understand what they mean. You know, the people who created Pinner feel really strongly that advertising to kids is an entirely different thing and they didn't want to do it. So right now you can try Pinna for free. Go to pinna.fm slash listen. Pinna.fm slash listen. And you can start your free trial today. See what it's all about. And now the spiel. James O'Keefe is charitably called a right-wing activist or a provocateur who specializes in undercover videos seeking to take down liberal institutions. Sometimes the videos work. They have an effect. Acorn was decimated after O'Keefe and an actress slash journalist dressed as uh, he dresses a pimp. She dresses a prostitute. They solicited advice from an Acorn official. Sometimes the operations fail spectacularly 
as when O'Keefe and his minions were arrested for breaking federal law in conjunction with a failed sting of Senator Mary Landrieu. In that matter, O'Keefe was sentenced to three years probation, 100 hours of community service. Now, time was when this started, when this was new, institutions were so fearful of their funding that O'Keefe's tactics would often work. He got scalps like NPR. Today, NPR announced the resignation of President and CEO Vivian Schiller. That after conservative activists released an undercover ambush video yesterday that showed the company's senior fundraiser disparaging Republicans, conservatives and the Tea Party and suggesting that in the long run, NPR would be better off without federal funding. But O'Keefe's shtick has been getting old, and targets are also growing backbones. Take the planned parenthood videos. They successfully rebutted a series of these set-up undercover videos made by an O'Keefe acolyte, because I am an accurate journalist. I will say this was not a Project Veritas project. But like I said, a disciple of O'Keefe, a guy who credits O'Keefe with being influential, went in there, made those videos, but Planned Parenthood fought back. Recently, O'Keefe has started in on the New York Times. First, they get some web guy saying something. He's been there like six months. It has really no impact, a lot of smoke, no fire. They get a low-level employee bragging about being James Comey's godson. They get someone else who uh, works as a video editor who's involved in a tech job popping off about personal politics. They, they get nothing. But they put it up and they pretend it's something. And now today was the next part, the next part of this series. Here's James O'Keefe introducing it. Now we continue with someone who hasn't worked at the New York Times for six months or six years, but someone who's worked there for 20 years as an IT contractor. And he, more than anyone, is exposed to the internal workings and the shenanigans at the New York Times. And you will be amazed at the things he says. The IT consultant. They flip the IT guy. Okay, I am prepared to be amazed. So the people I work with are pissed. They're like, this is bullshit. They, they hate Trump. Everybody hates Trump. They're like, Trump, Trump. So everybody in the office is saying, Trump. Trump, yeah, they all hate him. Have you, have you met anybody in the office who's like, no. They, every person I work with, they're like, I can't believe it. Why is that though? One guy I know, he quit his job, moved to Canada. Oh my God, I am amazed. I'm amazed that an employee of the August Institution, the New York Times, would hang out in a bar playing Californication. But that's not what I'm supposed to be amazed about. I'm supposed to be amazed about that a guy who's clearly drinking at a bar with someone who's so trustworthy that he has a hidden microphone, that this guy disclosed that his fellow employees hate Donald Trump. I cannot imagine how the New York Times reacted to this bombshell, probably with calls like this. Oh, yeah. Hi, Todd. Uh, yeah. Uh, hold on. I, I know you got an unscrupulous videographer there running a sting up on you, but could you uh, just tell me what the password for the VPN is? The IT guy. The IT guy is bringing them down. What revelations must the IT guy have? One, that none of these goddamn people on the news desk understand running OS updates. And two, they also don't like Trump that much. One guy I know, he quit his job, moved to Canada. Hatred, profanity, moving to Canada? According to Gordon, this is business as usual at the New York Times. So that was James Keefe again at the end, noting that a Times employee, actually a Times contractor, 
swore, by the way, so did his undercover video guy. I guess this is like doing drugs with the drug lord to get in. You know, he hated saying the F word, but he had to just to show that he was down. But then wouldn't like a right wing ideologue like the fact that New York Times employees were moving to Canada? Just, you know, take them out of our ecosystem. They flipped the IT guy. Ladies and gentlemen, every year, the most prestigious award in journalism, about journalism, is given by Penn State University. It is called the Bart Richards Award, but we will henceforth call it the James O'Keefe Flip the IT Guy. And you know what? This is funny. I know the IT guy. I happen to know this guy. We were camp counselors together back in like 1992. I'm not kidding. This guy, Todd, he was a nice guy. Loved the Grateful Dead, jam bands in general, and all that implies. He told us in college that his pals had a nickname for him. Goofy. Todd was a lovable guy. The kind of guy who would talk openly in a bar, even a bar that played Californication. And that's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Dan Schrader, who works at Slate. But he will tell you in a moment of honesty that everyone at Slate says they like Twin Peaks, but they don't really get it. Mary Wilson also produced The Gist. She used to work for Pennsylvania Public Radio. Get a couple of Tom Collins and her, and she'll tell you that the people there could talk faster. They just don't want to. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Here's tape of him after having drunk a few IPAs. You know what I do all day? I'll tell you what I do all day. Under fake names, I post reviews in iTunes. Not even about Slate shows. About Reply All. I give it one star. That's my game. That was a me channeling Steve Lichtai. Actual audio recording. The gist in Vino Veritas. And once I get a couple sheets to the wind, I might just admit to you, I actually kind of like Californication. Oomperu de Peru du Peru, and thanks for listening.